Welcome back, everybody. As we continue our study in 2 Corinthians, we took a pause last week as we looked at the life of Boaz, our kinsman redeemer. And, uh, but this week we pick up our study in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Now, the last two studies in 2 Corinthians, we talked about walking in the 1% world, living in the 99% world, referring to the physical and spiritual realms. And uh, this morning, it's uniting the 1% and 99% worlds. And uh, I can think of no better uh, symbol for that than a zipper. And uh, you can think of, you know, the purpose of a zipper is to take two things and bring them together as one. And you can think of the material on the left side here as the 1% world, and the material on the right as the 99% world. And this little thing you pull on that moves upward and unites the two, that's you. That's me. And as we progress through this life, we should be combining the spiritual and the physical together. So we have the physical here on the left and the spiritual on the right. We're going to be delving a little bit today as well into some Ohio history trivia. And it's kind of interesting that... um, the University of Akron's, um, the name of their sports teams are the Zips. Back in 1927, they were the Zippers. But in 1950, they just shortened that to the Zips. And there's some controversy as to whether they're called the Zippers because of some rubber overshoes that were made by the B.F. Goodrich Company, and Akron is the rubber capital of the world. But others say that they were called the Zippers after the Zipper. Uh, but anyways, they're called the Zips now. And if you're wondering what their logo is, <laughs> it's not a zipper on the side of their helmets. It's a kangaroo. Go figure. But anyways, uh, the zipper, nevertheless, is a great image to keep in mind that as we progress through this world, we should be knitting together the spiritual and the physical and elevating physical things from the mundane to the spiritual. Okay, screen needs to be bigger. Thank you. Now, last week when we were talking about Boaz, uh, as I was going through the teaching, I got this passage in my mind, and I fumbled around a bit, if you recall, looking for it. I was looking in Revelation 22 for the passage, but it's actually in Revelation 21. And I want to revisit that, because it really... uh, gels with what we want to talk about today in uniting the two worlds. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, the world was one. There was no distinction between physical and spiritual, but the enemy came and he instigated a plot. And because Adam and Eve put their faith in the words of Satan instead of the words of God, the world was separated. But through Yeshua and his work and his influence in the world and through us, his disciples, he wants to bring tikkun, repair to the world, to the damage that was done through Adam. Hebrews tells us that one of Yeshua's missions, his main mission, is completely undo all the damage done by Satan. And just as the sin came into the world and this tearing took place, through the sin of the first Adam. Yeshua, who's called the last Adam, his job is to repair all that damage done by Adam, 
who listen to the enemy's lies. So by walking in truth, we bring repair to the world. And we should leave behind us a united world, a united world that's knit together. Through our words, our actions, through the way we use our gifts, our money, and uh, our talents, we should be constantly infusing this physical world with a 99% world, the world of reality, the, the eternal world. Now, the passage I was, as I said, I was fumbling around for last time is Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. Fascinating passage. It says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, once again, if you've listened to Beth Goon for any time, you know that this lake of fire, this is not hell, it's not eternal. Um, lakes, water, and fire are God's means of purifying. Water and fire have purpose, and it's to bring purity. And so people who are practicing these things, they're caught up in these things, they need to go through the fire so that their souls can be purified and they can be presented spotless before the Lord. Now, let's look at these things I have highlighted in red. I call this a slippery spiritual slope. And here they are. Here are the eight things that are listed. And what brought my, my, my attention to focus on this is because number one on the list is cowardice, being cowardly. The first step into all of these things, into this descent into being like Satan, who is the original liar, begins with cowardice, with fear. Now, we all have fears. Uh, fear is kind of a, a natural thing, and there are appropriate things to be afraid of. The one appropriate thing is to be afraid of God, because fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I have discovered that the healthier our fear of God is, there, there's unhealthy fear of God as well, but healthy fear of God means you're not afraid of anything else. Now, I don't like heights unless I'm holding on to something, and... Um, uh, I have a, a fear of broccoli, and uh, <laughs> I have fear of uh, people heading my way at high rates of speed while they're texting. You know, that's a natural kind of a biological fear that rises up. But that's not cowardice. Cowardice is meaning I am not going to take appropriate action because I'm afraid. A fearless person will always take appropriate action, even when they do feel fear. So cowardice is something that, in God's economy, is sin. And cowardice comes because you're believing lies. And it comes because you're hiding from what you're supposed to do. This word for cowardice is found in in, in many places in Scripture, I've given you a few samples. Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear or cowardice, but of power and love and of self-control. 
In John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is Yeshua speaking. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Greek word here is delos, and it's the common word for fear and cowardice. And um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, this is the word that's used in Deuteronomy 1.21. See, Adonai your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as Adonai the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Fear will keep you from doing what you're supposed to do if you give in to it. And when you give in to fear, that's called cowardice. Now, what follows cowardice is faithlessness and being detestable. And the word for detestable means foul-smelling. It's like a rotten piece of meat. It's like, whoa, you know, something, something's dying around here. And if you notice, faithlessness and being detestable, these are attitudes. These are attitudes that are the fruit of cowardice. And if we become faithless, because fear and faith simply cannot dwell together. If you have faith or you have fear, you cannot really have both. But these can lead to immoral actions. So we see next murderers and the sexually immoral. I'm not sure why that keeps jumping down. I need to watch how I put my hand on here. So this leads to immorality. Immoral actions. Show me an immoral person. I'll show you a person who does not have right attitudes towards truth and towards God. And they don't have that because there's a fear there. You know, I always say that people sin the same way Adam and Eve do because they're afraid they're going to miss out on something if they don't sin. And so even the initial sin was produced by fear. And then these immoral actions lead to occultic actions, false worship. It leads to a worship of Satan, because that's really what sorcery, witchcraft, idolatry are. It's substituting falsehood in place of truth, substituting our enemy in place of God. So what starts with cowardice can lead down becoming a liar. And who is the father of lies? Satan himself. John 8, 44 says, uh, he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's the inventor of the lie. And one of the things you'll notice is people who lie are people who are cowardly. And I know in my own life, cowardice leads me to falsehoods. Think of Adam and Eve. When they sinned and they realized they were naked, the first thing they did was hide. And so God comes walking through the garden and says, Adam, where are you? And uh, he said, well, we're, we're naked and we were afraid. Who told you you were naked? And then Adam blames the whole problem on Eve. Eve blames the problem on the enemy. What they were doing was lying. 
They should have blamed the problem on themselves because their choice was their own. And uh, one of the discussion questions coming up at the end will be, think of examples in the scriptures where cowardice led to falsehoods, led to lying. And you'll, you'll find many of them there. So this is a very slippery spiritual slope, one that we want to avoid. Now, cowardice is the first one in the list. But I know we tend to think that the love of money is the root of all evil. And this is the passage, 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. And uh, I, I don't disagree with this. How can I? This is the scripture. Uh, love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. But I believe cowardice is the seed that gives rise to that root. Because people who love money are people who look to money for their security. Why do they look to money for their security? They're afraid. And so, once again, fear is what leads this love of money because we believe having lots of money that can protect us from anything that might happen. Well, it can't protect you. In fact, that love of money will lead you to all kinds of things that uh, will bring a lot of pain into your life. So, with that, let's get to 1 Corinthians because this passage, chapters 8 and 9, have to do with giving. They have to do with giving, and to be a genuine, cheerful giver takes courage. So we're going to begin with chapter 8, verse 1, and this is what it says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the communities of Macedonia. Now, Paul's writing to Corinth. He says, I want you to know about what's going on among your neighbors in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Notice that, in a severe test of affliction. If you want to read about the attitudes of the citizens of Macedonia and how resistant they were to the good news of Messiah, you can read Acts chapters 16 and 17. And Paul had some firsthand experience in Macedonia and the attacks that came his way because the people were, were very, uh, very um, against any message of the gospel. But among, among those who did embrace the good news of the Messiah, they had an abundance of joy. And even though they were in poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They had great courage. And what they're doing is totally illogical. Because in the 1% world, in the physical world, they had very little. But because they were living in the 99% world, they had this spiritual realization and they were uh, so aware of God's truth in their lives, they could overflow with an abundance of generosity. And in the middle of the severe test of affliction, they had an abundance of joy. That doesn't make sense. But things of the spiritual realm really don't make sense to people who only know this world. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the holy ones. 
Now, this relief of the holy ones, of the saints, is referring to the, uh, the terrible famine that was taking place in Israel, in the south, in Judea. And Paul refers to this in Galatians and elsewhere in his writings, as they would collect money from the Gentile assemblies to send back and to send food back to help support the Jewish communities in Judea. Verse 5, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Master, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Rich in physical means no, but rich spiritually. Verse 10, and in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well. It's so easy to start something, much more difficult to finish it. We, as believers in Messiah, people who live in the 99% world, should finish what we start. When we say we're going to do something, do it. And when you go through the wilderness period where you feel like quitting, you keep going anyway. You don't give up. If we are disciples of the Master, then like Him, we do not give up. Even though there's persecution and opposition, we keep doing what is right because our King has told us what to do and we follow through with faithfulness. This takes great courage to do this. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. They were ready and they desired to do it, but now Paul says complete it out of what you have. Take what you've got, what God's given you, and finish the job. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So many times we use what we don't have as an excuse not to use what we do have. And that's foolishness. And we're believing a lie. A lie that arises out of fear. We take what we have, which God's given us, and we use it. We're going to talk about that in a moment. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Everything in this world is in motion. Everything here is dynamic. It's always moving. This is called the world of action, and Hebrew is called the world of asiyah, the world of doing and of movement and of action. Everything's fluid. God is a rock. He doesn't change. And in the spiritual realm, 
things are fixed, they're eternal. But down here, it's like waves of a, of a sea, just always moving. Everything about this world, you know, the water, the oceans, the air, uh, the weather, everything about weather is fluid dynamics. It's the movement, you know, gases and liquids are, are called fluids, and they're just always moving. What a picture of this world. And, uh, but the rock, that is something that is stable. And the spiritual realm is the rock. Uh, Yeshua in Luke and also in Matthew gives the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. They both build houses. For all practical purposes, they're probably beautiful mansions. But in Luke's uh, account, it's, uh, Yeshua tells them that the wise man digs down to the rock and then builds his house on the rock. And what we need to do is dig down into the unseen, encounter the rock, and then begin to build up. We have to establish our reality on the spiritual, the unchanging 99% world. Then verse 15, as it is written, and he's quoting Exodus 16 here about the giving of the manna. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. In other words, spiritual mathematics don't make sense. Here's something I want you to keep in mind. All sin is theft. All sin is some form of theft. All righteousness is giving, some form of giving. I've commented on this many times before, that the first sin, the sin in the garden that Adam and Eve committed, was theft. God says you can eat of all the trees, but that one you don't eat from. Don't eat from that tree, because when you do, you'll begin to die. But what did they do? They took what they did not have permission to take. They stole. And then you fast forward about 4,000 years, and Yeshua is crucified on a tree. The word for wood, the word for tree, are the same word in Hebrew. And he was crucified between what? Two thieves. One repentant, one not repentant. Uh, I think there's a, a message here, because all sin is a form of theft. Whether it's uh, adultery or murder or blasphemy and using God's name in vain, because when you use God's name in vain, you're stealing his glory. You're treating his name as if it's not something glorious and set apart. You're treating it as something common. And covetousness is a form of internal theft, emotional theft, mental theft. And uh, so you look at all these sins, everything in the scripture, if it's sin, it's a form of taking what does not belong to you. Receiving is okay. Taking is never okay. And righteousness, which is the opposite of sin, is always a form of giving. Stingy people cannot be righteous people. Stingy people cannot be loving people. And stingy people are stingy because they're cowardly. But when we have knowledge of the 99% world, we realize there's no lack in God's supply. And no matter how much we give, there's nothing, there's no lack. And when we give, there's actually plenty left over. Now, I want to talk a, a moment. I want us to, to get an idea 
of how giving takes place. Because the moment you come to this chapter, you hear me talking about giving, you start thinking, oh, he's drumming up, trying to get us to give money. <clears throat> because usually when you hear a Bible teacher talk about giving, it's always, give me more money. Give us more money. Our ministry needs more money. And if you give us more money, God will give you more money. And uh, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, uh, that's the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, Beth the Coon has never asked for money, and we're not asking now. And God has been very gracious and generous to us, and the people have been very generous. And I think one of the reasons is because we're not trying to get our hand on your wallets. That's never been our motive, never will be as long as I draw breath. But in this fluid world, all of us have a supply of seed. And that seed can come in the form of time, abilities, energy, uh, there are different giftings and talents. And, of course, there is financial. Uh, but all of these things are things we have. Think of all of these things as seed. And if you plant them in the right way, they will bear a harvest. And so here we are. We have these things from the 1% world that God, God's given us. We have things from the 99% world he's given us. And if we know how to sow them correctly, if we know how to invest them in the right way, we can knit together the physical and spiritual. We can leave behind us the fruits of the Spirit, the signs of God's work in our lives, and begin to bring tikkun, repair, to this world as we bring repair to the lives of the people we meet. Let me give you just a very simple example. I brought with me a... uh, a matchstick this morning. A matchstick. There it is, a wooden matchstick. <clears throat> and uh, I looked up to see how much these cost. And on Amazon, you can buy a box of 300 of these for a little over $3. So basically a penny a piece. Not worth much. And once you strike the match and use it, it's no good. You toss it aside. So this is worth one penny. But this matchstick I have had for almost 55 years. And I keep it in this little glass tube to protect it. Because this matchstick, though it looks like every other one-cent matchstick, has something more to it. Uh, A little more Ohio history trivia. About an hour south of where I'm sitting right now is a town, beautiful little town called Dover, Ohio. And in 1885... uh, a man was born there. Of course, he wasn't a man when he was born, but, but you know what I mean. And he was born, his name was Ernest uh, Warther. His nickname was Mooney. Um, he had a third grade education, but he was a genius. He was a genius. And I got to meet Mr. Warther when he was about 80 years old. I was in my mid-teens. And uh, he took this matchstick, and by making, I think it's nine or ten cuts in it, he turned it into a pair of pliers. A pair of working pliers. There's no waste, no sawdust, and he did it in under 30 seconds. So he took something that was from the physical realm, a one-cent matchstick, but he took a gift from God that came from the spiritual realm, and he took that gift and applied it to this. How much is this matchstick worth now? More than a penny. 
because I wouldn't hold on to a one-set matchstick for 55 years. But because this genius applied his talent to this only for 30 seconds, how much is this worth now? Now, he died in 1971, and he is renowned as the world's greatest woodcarver. Not because of this. This is what he did for fun. But he went on to carve the history of steam locomotion using only hand tools. This is a, a picture of one of his models, made of wood, made of ivory. He used no power tools at all. Everything was whittled. And, um, and these are priceless. He took some wood, and he took some ivory. He started with chicken bones. He couldn't afford to buy ivory at the time. But he took some materials worth a few dollars. He applied his gift to those materials, and now these are priceless. And he never sold a single one of them, ever. He gave some away, but he refused to sell them. He said, the moment I sell one, it's not fun anymore. It's a business. And this is not what he did for a living. This is what he did a couple hours each morning before he left for work. And now there's a museum housing his works. And I've been there many times, and we often take guests there from out of town. And uh, it, it's kind of funny. I always tell them, I'm going to take you to the, a museum. Uh, it's just an hour south of here. Uh, the world's greatest woodcarver um, has his works on display there, and he, 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 he carves steam trains. And they try to look excited about that. They never do a very good job. But I know what's, ahead, what's, what's in store for them. And so we go in, and they begin to look, and very soon they're absolutely stunned. They are totally gobsmacked by this. And when they walk out, they're almost speechless. And they're different, because there's something spiritual that happens when you realize what one man could do by taking a God-given talent and investing it, simply using it, doing it, investing his time and his talent, taking these raw materials, and he does something that is absolutely inspiring. And you just can't believe what you're seeing. And then you start thinking of your own life. And everybody comes out, out of there, they all say, I feel like I'm totally worthless. I feel like I've wasted my whole life. Because this guy with a third grade education accomplish these incredible feats. And uh, what have I done? Well, I don't know what uh, Mr. Werther accomplished in the spiritual realm, but he was doing the thing God put him on earth to do. No question about it. And that's what God asks of us. To take something that may seem worthless and may be worthless on its own, and then to apply your time, your attention, your talents that God gives you, and turn it into something that's priceless. Let's take an example from Scripture. Let's, let's take this story that we're all so well aware of. In Matthew 14, this is the feeding of the 5,000, a story we all know, but we'll look at it in a little different way this time. And in verse 16, uh, what has happened is that Yeshua has been teaching the multitudes and uh, it's getting a little bit late, and the disciples come to him to give the master some advice. And they say, it's getting late, people are hungry, so you need to disperse them, tell them, okay, go on, go on home now, because it's getting late, and you need to go home and get something to eat. And then Yeshua says, 
They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, what do you think if you're one of the disciples? You're thinking, I don't have enough here to feed myself. In fact, I don't have anything here. How am I supposed to give them something to eat? That is impossible. God loves a challenge. Because in the 99% realm, nothing's impossible. With God, all things are possible. But the cowardly will never believe that. But the people who have faith and walk in truth never forget that. And so Yeshua is teaching his disciples here through this miracle. He says, you give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. All we have is a one-cent matchstick. What's that worth? Look at the need and look at our provision. This provision will not meet the need. So here we are. This is, this is uh, Ernest Werther, right? And over on the left, you've got a, a one-cent matchstick. But he turns it into something that is really, to me, is priceless. It's a priceless memory. Here you are. You have maybe no musical talents, no writing talents, no artistic abilities. But you have an acquaintance. You have someone who's in need. And you have the desire to bring bring them comfort. So all you do is you speak some words. You have some words to give them. Some heartfelt affection. And it can transform their lives. A few words. Don't underestimate the damage a word can do or the life the word can give. Because Solomon tells us the power of life and death is in the tongue. A word. A tiny word. A little sentence is all it takes. And you can absolutely make that person's life blossom. Um, Something even smaller than the word. It could be a smile, a look in the eyes that says, I see you, and I'm glad to see you. And that can transform a person's day. Think of the little things. I think too often we're trying to think, what are the big things in my life I can give to God? You probably don't have big things. It's a matter of giving the small things. Now, we have a couple people here watching today, and I see my lovely bride's hand up. Robin. She can't resist. Go ahead. One of my favorite verses lately is in James 3. And I, we've been talking yes. about it at home. It's the last verse. Yeah. And it says, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Yes. And that, <clears throat> James 3.18, if you couldn't hear what Robin said, James 3.18 is also one of the verses that's in your notes at the end of the lesson. And it's this, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And uh, that has been a verse we've talked about quite a lot. The seed whose fruit is righteousness. Do you want to produce the fruit of righteousness in your life and the lives of others? Then you have to take the seed you have, and the way you sow the seed is of, of ultimate importance. Because you must sow that seed in peace. 
You know, you might have a verse of scripture that applies to someone's life, but if you don't supply that passage with an attitude of peace and of love, then that verse can actually do damage, have the opposite effect. If you want to see the fruit of righteousness, you have to take the seed and sow it in peace. And it's sown in peace by those who make peace. It's a powerful, powerful verse. And that, again, is James 3.18. Thanks, Robin, for sharing that. So, what did Yeshua do? They've got three fish, I'm sorry, five fish and two loaves. That's not much. So what did they do? Here's Yeshua in the middle, and he's about to feed more than 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children, and have 12 baskets full left over. What do they do? Well, let's continue the story. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he made a blessing. Your translation may say he blessed the food. He didn't bless the food. In Judaism, you don't bless food. Food is already blessed. If it wasn't blessed, it wouldn't give you life. God's already blessed food for our nourishment. What he did, he made a blessing. In Jewish tradition, and Yeshua follows it here, you never put a piece of food in your mouth that's larger than an olive without, first of all, blessing God for the food. You always make a blessing first. Then after the meal, you give thanks for it. So that blessing is an expression of gratitude. But then after you're satisfied, then you're really grateful. And that is when you can allow your gratitude to really be expressed. So the blessing he would have said or made was, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And we just want to bless you. Thank you. We recognize what little we have came from you. So after he blessed it, he broke it. This brokenness is something we can never afford to miss. God can only use what is broken. And God not only needs to break the things in our lives that are wicked, you know he even needs to break the things that are good. We often meet someone who... um, has great giftings, or has a lot of charisma. And we think, oh, what a great Christian they would make. If they would only come to Yeshua, oh, what a great believer they would be. Well, maybe, but not until they're broken. Everything we have, good or bad, needs to be broken. It needs to have God's touch on it to where we no longer have reliance upon it. It's what Yeshua did with Moses when he called him at the burning bush. And and Moses had a staff. His staff is what he relied upon. It was his weapon. It was his source of security. It is what he used to correct the sheep. It was something that made him recognizable as the shepherd. It was something that helped him to walk through the rocky territory. It's what he used to explore a hole to see if there might be a serpent or a scorpion there. It was his livelihood. It was his symbol of being a shepherd. And what did God tell him to do with that? He didn't say, oh, I can use that staff. He said, Moses, throw it down. So he threw it down and it became a serpent, a poisonous one. And Moses fled from it. 
He had to submit what he relied upon for security. He had to submit it to God. Let its nature be revealed. And then God said, now I'll pick it up by the tail. And when he picked it up by the tail, which took courage, it became a staff again. But from that moment on, it was called the staff of God. Brokenness is what reveals what's inside. And often when we have a gifting from God, what's inside of that gifting is our own pride and ego. And we want to use that gift to promote ourselves. And God says, I've got to break that. And he allows us to experience real genuine failure and pain oftentimes. So we're broken. And then he says, okay, take it up. And often we don't want to. Well, Lord, I used to do that. I used to be a singer. I used to be a drummer. I used to be a writer. And it was just a horrible experience. It just turned into failure and pain. And God says, take it up. This time it's going to be my gift that I'm allowing you to use. Think of Aaron. When in a moment of insanity, he allowed the people to talk him into making a golden calf. I mean, what's more harebrained and wicked than that? And then after he did that, Moses came down. Moses ground it up, put it in the water, made the people drink it. People died. It was just a horrible experience. But then shortly after that, God instructs Aaron, I want you to take an eggle, a calf. He uses that particular term, the same term as used for the golden calf, the eggle zahav. He says, I want you to take an eggle. Why don't you make a sacrifice to me? And I'm sure in Aaron's mind he's thinking, I don't want anything more to do with calves. That was a bad experience. And it was a bad experience, but God says, well, you have to go take it up again. You put your hand on it, you get a calf. And this time we're going to do things right. And you're going to sacrifice that calf to me. And Aaron did. You might ask yourself, what is the thing in your life that turned out to be an utter failure? That God's saying, okay, this time you're more humble. This time you're more broken. I want you to take it up again. you have the courage to do that? Can you trust God enough to be obedient and take it up, even though it looks like a poisonous serpent to you? If you do, it's going to work this time, I promise. So, he broke the loaves. And then he gave them, distributed the disciples. Disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So let's analyze this. What is the progression? He told the disciples, you feed them. They said, all we have are five loaves, two fish. So they recognize what they had. They realize it's not enough. Of course, what you have isn't enough to really accomplish anything of lasting uh, consequence. But recognize what you've got. And instead of saying this isn't enough, God hasn't supplied me enough to accomplish his will in my life and through my life to really change this world. Recognize what you have and express gratitude for it. Make a blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord, who gave me this, this ability to raise carrots, <laughs> carve matchsticks. Uh, you gave me time that I can sit and talk to people. You gave me a musical ability. You gave me the ability 
to read to people. You gave me the ability to do whatever it is. However small it looks. Squint if you have to, but look at it as small as it is and recognize it comes from God and thanking for it. And then give it to him. They gave the loaves and the fish to Yeshua. Put it in his hands. Say, Lord, I recognize this is not mine. Though it comes from you, I give it back. Last week, we talked about the two gifts God gives us, life and freedom, and how these are the only two things of worth we have to give back to him. He gives them to us, and we say, thank you. Now I have something to give to you. So you take what he's given, and you recognize his ownership. You give it back to him. Allow him to break it. Allow him to do with it what he wants. It may look like he's destroying what you give him, but you just trust him. And then begin to give what you have. Begin to give the broken pieces to people. And you're going to find the more you give, the more you have. You'll never run out. And then it will end in satisfaction, real genuine satisfaction on behalf of those you fed and whose needs you've met with your gifts. It's a wonderful progression. So keep this image in mind. Here you are. You've got a little. You've got a little. Whatever that little is. You know what to do with it. Be grateful for it. Surrender it to God. Let him break it. Let him change it. Alter it. However he wants. And then share it. And then stand back and see what God does. Allow th- giving is always a matter of flowing. It's always a matter of things flowing through you. And by doing this, you unite the 1% world and the 99% world. You bring tikkun. You bring a change in the world. And you begin to knit together reality. All right? I hope you can follow that. I wish I had a large group here right now because I know I'd be getting some really great questions and insights. But uh, with your group, you can discuss this more. I seem to be missing the page, but that's right. It'll be over here. At this point, I'm going to skip in Corinthians. Uh, It was a very peaceful passage, chapters 8 and 9, and there's not a whole lot going on here. Under the surface, or if there is, it probably is, I just don't see it, but uh, I want to skip to chapter 9 and pick it up with verse 6 and go right on to the end. He's talking about giving. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you plant one watermelon seed, you get one watermelon plant. If you plant 10 watermelon seeds, you get 10 watermelon plants. It's common sense. What do you have? Seeds are small, tiny things. They may not look like much, but they're extremely powerful when you do with them what God ordained you to do with them. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Those are the two extremes. Reluctant, well, I'll give. I really don't want to, but I'll feel ashamed if I don't. And you know, it's... Uh, i got to give 10%. Oh, well, I don't want to be disobedient. Here it is. That's reluctance. Under compulsion is when somebody is saying, you've got to give or you can't be a member of our church or if you don't give, God's going to bring a curse into your life and then you feel compelled. 
And Paul says neither of those is really giving. That's a form of robbery or a form of blackmail. He says, not reluctantly, not in compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able, I love this verse. Maybe you've never noticed this passage before, but look at this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Those words in red are all the same word in Greek. It's the word pas, or sometimes it's uh, spelled pan. That's where we get like the word pan-America or, or pandemic. It means it's everywhere. And this word, Greek word, is used five times in this verse. It's used two more times over in verse 11. We'll get to that in just a second. Look at that. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may abound in all good works. Think again of the story of feeding the 5,000. To the physical eyes, they had five loaves, two fish. But in the spiritual realm, they had all grace, all sufficiency for everything they needed, at that moment in time, and for all times, in every good work. I mean, look what they accomplished with that. This is the promise of the spiritual realm. This is the promise of the eternal realm, the promise of God, our rock, who is spirit. This is what he promises to us that we can accomplish. So why shouldn't we be cheerful in giving? Everything is ours. It's all given to us, all grace, all sufficiency, and all things at all times. As it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 112. Now, before I even read the verse, this is verse 9 from Psalm 112. Psalm 112 is a very short psalm. It's only 10 verses. But it has 22 phrases, and it's an acrostic psalm. Each phrase begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, going through all 22 letters. And uh, in your discussion questions, I want you to take time to go through this very short psalm. And look what it has to say about fear. And also what it says about the attributes of a righteous person. It's a fantastic psalm. It's a little short 10-verse psalm. And because it's an acrostic psalm, it has special, uh, I don't want to use the word power, but it's got a special message, um, a special effectiveness if we can apprehend what it's trying to tell us. And he quotes verse 9, He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. This is what God has done. Distributed freely, given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. There we see giving and righteousness once again united. All righteousness is a form of giving. And Paul is quoting this because he's saying we're supposed to behave like God. So we should distribute freely, give to the poor. And we should live righteous lives in a way that's a righteousness that comes as a fruit of his spirit and endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched, and here's that Greek word again, in all or every way to be generous in every way. So seven times 
that word for all or every. That Greek word is used seven times in this short passage. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It's overflowing, 12 baskets full. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the good news of Messiah and the generosity of your contribution for them, for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So again, he's referring to their giving out of their need, giving to the hungry people in Judea. And God says, as you supply their need, God supplies your need. You're giving physically, you'll be receiving spiritually. There's a flow here. You know, the word forgive in Hebrew, the word natan, none, I believe it's tov in the middle, none, tov, none, is spelled the same forward and backwards. And the rabbis say, because every time you give, something's given back. Natan, natan. When you give, you receive. And this is why when God gives to us, he receives something in return, if we're grateful. And you know what it's like when you give a gift to someone, and they just explode with joy, and they're so grateful for it. How do you feel? You've given them something physical, but they've given you something spiritual. They've given you a joy because you see the happiness in them and something lights up in you. So there's Natan and there's Natan. You gave, but you're receiving something back. And uh, that's a very spiritual thing. And when it says it's more blessed to give than to receive, that's because the giver is actually getting more in return. And then I love this last verse. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That Greek word for inexpressible is used only one time in the Bible, and that's it. Inexpressible means it's unspeakable. There's no way you can put it into words. Simply no way. Now, back up in verses 10 and 11, it's talking about sowing and, and reaping. I have five passages in the notes I'd like you to take time to look at. The first one's the one Robin referred to. James 3.18. But I also want you to look at Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, and these verses are printed out in the notes. Hosea 10.12, Proverbs 11.18. I'm sorry, four verses in all. So here are your discussion questions. How many instances in the Bible can you think of where cowardice led to lying? Can you think of examples... Uh, from your own life? Of course, we all know you can. So if you say no, we know you're lying because you're afraid. But <laughs> Next, how does a healthy fear of God prevent fear of everything else? <clears throat> I always think of the story of Jacob wrestling with God. He was so afraid to meet his twin brother Esau, who's coming to kill him. But after he wins his battle, his wrestling match with God, there was no fear of Esau. Analyze that. Talk about that. When he got a healthy fear of God, he was not afraid of his brother Esau anymore. In 9.9, Paul quotes Psalm 112. Read and discuss this short psalm. What does it say about fear? And what does it state are the attributes of a righteous person? And then 
in your group, and this is appropriate for your group, and if you know one another at all well, then do this one. Take turns in your group. Tell the person to your right what seed you see in their lives that they can sow or are sowing that will bear a great harvest. Sometimes things are so small that we can't see them in our own lives, but other people can. And so help your brother or your sister to see the small things in their life that they do so well that as they sow them, bear a great harvest. So uh, uh, enjoy that. Encourage one another with that. So with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much for these two wonderful chapters. And thank you for the gift you give us, the joy of giving. We're always so focused on getting, we make ourselves miserable. But Lord, when we are living in the 99% world, we have more than enough to share with the 1%. We have more than enough. And we have what the world is dying to receive. So Lord, I pray that we would invest spiritual seed in this world and we would make a difference. And through us, the spiritual and physical would be united. We would bring tikkun, bring healing and repair to this world. And we'd be found faithful to continue doing so until you come to establish your kingdom on earth, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until that day, may we be faithful servants. And we thank you so much for accepting us as your servants and workers in your field. We praise you for this and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.